0: John chapter 13, let's just read a little bit, it's been a while. John 13, starting at verse 31, remember the situation, they're in the upper room, it's the last supper, Passover, Jesus, Judas has just left, Jesus told Judas, what you do, do it quickly, and he's just left, let's pick it up then in verse 31, therefore, when he, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek Me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. i go prepare a place for you. And if i go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Just stop there. Remember, the Gospel of John contains seven long discourses of Jesus. There's more words of Jesus in John than any of the other Gospels. Oh, It's not that much more, but there's more. This is the seventh and last. This this last discourse where Jesus talks to his disciples lasts from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17. Well, 17 is actually praying to the Father, but it's recorded his words. No longer is Jesus in public before hostile crowds and the Pharisees who argue and fuss and and all that. Now he's with his disciples. Judas has left... He's with the eleven, those who love him, those who are for him, those who are with him. And it's a very intimate setting. And as he's teaching them about what's going to happen next and what they should be thinking, what they should believe. He can have a long section here and talk about the Holy Spirit and all that stuff. As he's talking to them, remember, he's talking to us. This is precious stuff. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is his words to his disciples right before he leaves. They call this the farewell discourse. He knows he's leaving, and he's leaving them with all these instructions. It really is precious stuff. This conversation takes place during the Last Supper. Then they leave there and head out of the city towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And and, and the conversation continues as they're going, apparently. Remember what's happened so far. In the beginning of chapter 13, he washed their feet. He dressed like a slave, took a pitcher of water, and just wash the dirt off their feet, which, which was something only the lowest of lowest of slaves would ever do. And then he sits down and he says, You know what I've done to you, man? And he says, If I am your master and your Lord, I'm your teacher, if I'm willing to humble myself to do the most menial service for you, then you also, although do the same for each other, serve one another, love one another, care for one another. Then he informs them after that, the mood kind of changes that one of you is going to betray me. And of course, they don't, they don't realize it's Judas. They're all concerned. Is it me, Lord? Would I do such a thing, Lord? Of course, then J- Jesus points out to John and, and Peter, it's Judas. And then he tells Judas to get out of here. What you're going to do, get it done. Get it done now. Judas probably wasn't going to betray him that night because it's a, it's a Passover. He had instructions from the Pharisees. Don't do this during the Passover. Then Judas probably ran to the, to the Pharisees. And said, listen, he knows about this plot. We've got to do this tonight or he's going to disappear. If you don't get him tonight, you're not going to get him at all. That's probably what something like what he said. Then he announces, after, he, after this happens, that now, right now, is when the Son of Man, God's Son, is going to be glorified in the Father, through the Father, by the Father. It's one of those Trinitarian verses. In the Father, through the Father, for the Father. Everything is, is what the Son does, the Father does. It says, now, right now, immediately, he says, the time has finally come when I'm going to enter into my glory. And of course, he's talking about the cross. We're going to talk about more about that in a little while. His greatest glory. That Jesus is glorious already. He's always been the glorious, eternal Son of God. But now, because he's going to lay down his life for the Father's sheep, even more glory is going to be given to him. Even more uh, authority, if you will. Philippians 2 says, because he did this, God has highly exalted him, and at, at Jesus' name, every knee is going to bow, because he did this. It's an amazing thing. He announces them, we saw this last week, that he's going to leave them. This is the first they're hearing this. Now, he's been telling them all along about suffering that's coming. They don't get it. They don't understand it. He's told the Jews several times, I'm going to soon be leaving, and you won't know where I am. But I'm sure the, the, the disciples assumed, yeah, we're going to go away. You're not going to find us. But here he says now to the 11, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. And where I'm going, you cannot follow me. We'll do that more in a second here. He commands them, then, to love one another. It's a command. It's actually says, a new commandment. There are now 11 commandments. There are the 10 that God gave through Moses, and they they stand. That's the moral code. There's now an 11th. Jesus gave us a commandment. You will love each other as I've loved you. That means we have an obligation. We have a duty and a privilege to study how has Jesus loved me. And, boy, that's a big thought. Then turn around and say, that's the same way I must love my brothers. He forgave me, I must forgive them. He, he served me, he humbled himself for my sake, I must serve and humble myself for their sake. He's our pattern, he's our Lord. He says, what I have done, you also must do. Love, it's a commandment. This isn't optional. If you're a Christian, I'm commanded to love you guys. Good thing too, right? Mm. No. <laughs> We're commanded by Jesus. In fact, three times this night, he'll say to them, I order you, I command you, you love one another. That's why John says, 13 verse 1, that he loves us to the very end. He really loved us. He knows now he's leaving. They're going to go through some very hard times. The next three days are going to be the worst days of their life. They're going to need each other in a big way. And when Christ is risen, after the Holy Spirit falls and the church starts witnessing to the world... They're going to face all kinds of persecution. If some of them are going to be murdered and, and, and beaten. They're going to need each other. You guys need to love each other, he says. That's still true today. Very, very, very true. He commands them that. Now, let's pick it up again, verse 36. Peter, as usual, he's probably the oldest. He's certainly the spokesman. He's the one you hear speaking the most in the Gospels. He speaks up what the others are probably all thinking. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Lord, where are you going? Now hear that. Hear the pain in that. Hear the sorrow in that. Whatever else Jesus had just said about love and, and his glory and all that stuff, Peter heard that. But what he really heard was, I'm going away, and you can't come. So he says, Lord, where are you going? matter. they've been with him now for th- over three years. Intimately, every place he went, for the good and bad, every place he went, they were with him. He's their life. He called them out of their trades. Peter dropped his nets and followed Jesus. Peter is all sold out for Jesus. He is. That's a good thing. Peter loves the Lord. They've given their lives up for him. He's their everything, as it should be. He's our everything, isn't he? He's he's their protector. He's their teacher. He's their leader. What can they do without him? Even when he sent them out two by two, he gave them special gifted abilities to go out and raise the dead and heal the sick. What could they possibly, if he went away, what, what could they possibly do without him? Wouldn't you be thinking that? Lord, where are you going? Why can't we go with you? Lord, where are, where are you going? That's a sad thing. He changed their lives dramatically. Just as you well know, when you come to Christ, your life changes dramatically for the better. For the Christian, Jesus is everything about your life. He's the reason. He's, he's, he's the reason I'm as blessed as I am. I was a mess before he walked into my life. He's the reason I am what I am. Imagine if he said, well, I'm going to go away. I'm going to leave you now. That's a hard thing. So if look, at, look at chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus does address this. But note the words here. 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Well, he's saying that because they are. They are troubled. They are afraid. He says, listen, I'm giving you my peace. Look at chapter 16, verse 22. Sixteen twenty-two. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. They're grieving. They're mourning. Lord, don't go away. Lord, don't go. They have grief. They're troubled by this, wouldn't you? And R.C. Sproul says all the time in his commentary, you're not done your work. When you look at the text, what do the words mean? What's the background? What's the context? Et cetera, et cetera. You're not done until you place yourself in that context. Imagine you're sitting there. You're one of his disciples, and you love him to death. Why wouldn't you? Everything about you. In fact, he's just now come. Imagine what these guys have seen in the last week. He raised Lazarus, and the crowds went crazy over him. They were adoring him. He marched into Jerusalem and people shouting, Hosanna, son of David, the king. All that stuff. He took on the Pharisees. He cleansed the temple. At the height of their career, he just told them a few verses before this, Now it's time for me to enter into my glory. And they're all thinking, This is it. This is it. And then he says, I'm leaving you and you can't go with me. How would you hear that? That would hurt. That would hurt. Their hearts are broken. As he says so here, don't be afraid, don't be fearful. for their hearts are broken. And then Jesus explains here further. Again, look at verse 36. It gets worse. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I lay down my life for you. He explains here, you cannot follow me now. Where I'm going right now, you can't come. Well, I'm about to go. You can't be with me. I do this alone, and he did. Now, but he does say you will follow me later. So, what's he talking about? I think you know. Let's let's talk about this. How will they follow him later? Why can't they follow him now? Again, Jesus often said this. I'm sure they're not getting it. They have no idea he's about to be arrested and condemned to death, and beaten, and all that abuse, and then flogged, and then crucified. They don't know that he's told them this. But they don't know that. They don't believe it. They think it's a metaphor or some kind of parable or something. Jesus is speaking of his arrest just a few hours from this time. He's going to be in the garden. They're going to arrest him. And they're going to take him away. He's going to put on trial. He's going to be publicly humiliated. They're going to condemn him to death as a blasphemer, march him out to Pilate, march him off to Herod, march him back to Pilate, beat and kicked abused, spit all that stuff, scourged with an inch of his life and crucify That's where he's going. He said, you can't follow me. This is my work, not yours. You can't go with me. He's speaking of his, all that's coming up. Now all of them will be persecuted. Remember for the, for the three days that he was gone, they're hiding in their room for fear that the Jews are going to come grab them out of there next. They're feeling like they're, it's, it's, we've been totally defeated. This whole Jesus thing has been a failure. He's dead. They're coming for us next. They're terrified. But again, just try to feel how, how sad this is. In fact, Jesus specifically told Peter this. Uh, ter- turn in John chapter 21. He says, you will follow me later. He specifically told Peter that. You know this, John 21. This is after the resurrection. When, remember when they see Jesus on the beach cooking fish and they jump, in, they jump in the water and go up and there they have breakfast on the beach with Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Yeah. And as he's walking, as he's walking, remember he says to Peter three times, do you love me, Peter? Peter, do you really love me? And then he says this, he tells Peter that about his own coming martyrdom. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. By that he means, Peter was probably this rough, tough guy. If he was around today, he'd be one of those rude, too, tattooed, biker kind of guys. He's the kind of guy to pull a knife in a fight. Peter was was a man's man. He was was a kind of rough and tumble fisherman. He says, when you were younger, you did whatever you wanted to do. But notice what he says next. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Then John adds this comment. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. When he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. He tells Peter, you know, when you were young, Peter, you used to do whatever you wished. No one could stop you. But when you get old, someone else is going to stretch out your hands and bind you, gird you, bind you against your will. And John says, he said that to Peter, telling him what kind of death he would die. John's writing this after Peter's dead. Now, in fact, Peter writes of this out on your sheet there. Peter mentions this incident in Second Peter. so on your sheet. As he's writing his second letter, the last letter Peter wrote just before he was, he was martyred, he says this, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, meaning as long as I'm still alive, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. How do you know that? Because you getting old. Jesus said, when you are older, they're going to stretch you out. And take you where you don't want to go. He says, now that I'm old, Peter says, I know, as the Lord told me, I'm soon going to be leaving here. Notice what he says then. I'll make every effort that after my departure you may be able to recall at any time these things. He's probably talking about Mark's gospel. Peter says, I know, my Lord told me, when I get old, I'm going to be martyred. I'm going to die. That wicked hand's so I'm, I'm going to make sure before I go that after I'm gone, you'll be able to remember all these things I taught you. And many think Peter traveled with John Mark, and Mark was told, that the early church records it, people told Mark, write down what he's saying. So Mark did. Mark put took what Peter taught. Peter would go town to town to town, talking about the Lord. Write it down, Mark. That's Mark's gospel, which is actually, you could say, Peter's gospel. Peter's saying here, I know I'm going to die soon because I'm old. The Lord has told me that. Therefore, I'm going to make sure after I'm gone, you'll have a way to remember these things. I I believe that's Mark's gospel. Now, the early church fathers report that Peter was arrested by Rome, was crucified. but But when it came to crucifying, Peter protested, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord was. Do it upside down. Now, think about that. Crucifixion itself is unbelievably nasty. To be upside down, would just hasten your death, and his wife, whose name was reportedly, I think it was Felicitas, was forced to watch this, and as he's being crucified, he, had, he was forced to watch her being strangled to death. That's how Peter died. That's what church history tells us. As Jesus said, when you're older, they're going to stretch you out. And that's what happened. But anyway, what, what Jesus is saying here, where I'm going now, all the suffering I'm about to endure, you can't follow me now, but you will later. That's why in, in all through the letters, Paul often says, I'm going to suffer with Christ. I'm going to suffer like Christ. Even Paul even said, I'm going to fill up the measure of Christ's sufferings. He's told that we must suffer with him and like him. I got a couple of verses there in the sheet. That, that's all about what Christ went through. He said, you will also follow later. And the history of the Christian church has been following Christ in suffering. Some verses. Philippians 129. Paul says, it has been granted. It's a gift. God gave you a gift for you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, that's that's a precious gift. God gave you the gift of faith to believe in Christ. But not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's telling us it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. I don't know if you see it that way. I don't know if I see it that way. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. It's a privilege. If someone sees in you that you're a Christian and tells you, shut up, you Jesus freak, it's a privilege. If someone sees Jesus in you and decides to fire you or or persecute you or whatever, all around the world right now, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted horribly because they proclaim the name of Jesus. That's a privilege. Because then you're like your master. You're doing what he did. Suffering for Christ. Suffering with Christ. Philippians 3.10. Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his suffering, becoming like him. Paul's desire was, like Paul wrote this, from prison. As he's suffering in a Roman prison, my desire is to suffer like him, to be like him in suffering as well. My Lord suffered for me. Paul says, I am happy to suffer for him. That's Christian attitude. Second Timothy 3.12, of course, there's this universal statement. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I that verse, I mean, the only way, you, if you're truly a Christian, the only way you're never going to get persecuted is if you never tell anyone you're a Christian. You hide it under a bushel. If you pretend you're not a Christian, they'll leave you alone. But if you proclaim Christ, if you live as a Christian, I'm not saying you got to walk around with a big neon billboard, I'm a Christian, but just live a life as a Christian, proclaiming Christ, you're getting in trouble. We're ordered, and we have the privilege of proclaiming Christ to a lost world. But when you do that, They're going to shake their fists. So you get out of here. We don't want to hear that. Try doing that today. Try go to any secular campus and talk about Jesus. You get booted off. You get attacked. Go into Hollywood or the news media or even many places now today in Washington and try to try to speak what genuine Christianity is. and They will shut you down. But that's our privilege to do that. If you want to live for Christ, you will be persecuted. Plan on it. Hebrews thirteen thirteen speaking how a Christ was crucified outside the city in shame. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear his reproach that he endured. He was humiliated and shamed and rejected. Hebrews says, join him. Go join him in that. Let them mock you too and laugh at you too and hate you like they hated him. That's a badge of honor. You remember in Acts chapter 4 when, when the apostles are arrested because they're preaching in Jesus, they're beaten, they're flogged. As they're leaving there, it says they, they were thankful that they were worthy to suffer. They're rejoicing while their backs are bleeding and they're probably walking out of there in intense pain. Thank you, Lord, that I can suffer for my Lord. That's an honor. It's a strange thing. The world would look at us and say, you're crazy, you Christians are crazy. Yeah, we are. Crazy for Christ, that's what it's all about. But Jesus says, where I'm going now, I do this alone. Jesus didn't need or any kind of help in the atonement. But you're going to follow. They, remember, he's going to tell them here several times in the next three chapters, they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's just what we're called for. Now, I don't think they get that. Disciples don't yet understand what's about to happen. He's been, he's been trying to soften the blow. He's been telling them all this in chapter 13, but they don't really get it yet. They will in a, in a very powerful... They're going to, try to punch them right in the face in just a few hours. They don't, they don't know that yet, what's coming. So then Peter again objects. And again, as you read this, just try to enter into what Peter's feeling. I, I can really relate to this, what he, what he says here. Verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. He meant every word of that. Lord, don't leave. Lord... I can't bear the thought of you leaving us. Why can't I follow you right now? Jesus said to them, you can't follow me now. Why? Wherever you're going, Lord, I'll go with you right now. They know. Jesus has been telling them all along about suffering that's coming. They don't understand that yet. I'm sure some of them think it's a kind of metaphor. Remember just recently, back in chapter 12 and here in chapter 13, it says Jesus was troubled in spirit. They see him visibly shook up. In the garden, they'll they'll really see him shook up. And they they can see something's scaring him. Something's disturbing him. So they know he's expecting trouble. He's already told them, there's a traitor. I'm going to be betrayed. So they know Jesus is expecting trouble. So Peter says, Lord, if you're going to be in trouble, I want to be there with you. Why can't I go with you right now? And he says there, Lord, I'd die for you. And he meant every word of that. Hear what Peter's, hear the, the, the thought of this. Hear the hurt in this. Lord... Where are you going? Why can't I follow you right now, Lord? I don't want to leave your side. And if you're going to face trouble, I want to be there, Lord. I'm sure Peter was probably some big, bruising, muscular fisherman kind of guy. I want to be there, Lord. I'll die for you. He meant that. He really meant that. But Peter sincerely said that he'd be willing to die for Jesus. And the others do too. I have it on your sheet. In Matthew 26... Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Hear what he's saying there? The other ten here might fall away from you, but not me, Lord. Now he meant that too. But hear a hint of pride in that? Lord, these losers might leave you, but I'm not going to. And he meant that. He's speaking pridefully. Even if they all leave you, Lord, me never. I will never leave you. Mark 14 Recorded, but, he, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter speaks up, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I would never deny you. Here, Jesus told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. No, I won't. Oh, no, I won't. No, Lord. It's like he said later in the book of Acts. Not so, Lord. Jesus told him, you're going to deny me. No, I won't. I'll die for you. Again, he means that, but here he's, he's arguing with Jesus. Remember he did that before? Remember back in, in Matthew 14 when Jesus told him, Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Absolutely accurate and right. And then Jesus tells him, probably for the first time, I'm going to be crucified. Remember what, Jesus, what Peter does? Come here, Lord, i got to talk to you. Come here. This is never going to happen to you. Don't talk like that. He rebukes him. No one's ever going to crucify you as long as I'm around. And he meant that. Because he loved him. He just said, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. No one's ever going to do this to you, Lord. No one. That's that sad thing. And Peter means this with all his heart. When we, when, later on in, in this gospel, when we get to Peter's denial, we're going to talk more about this. But Peter meant that. Peter was a simple man, but a true man. Jesus, Jesus loved Peter, and Peter loved his Lord. And He says, Lord, I will die for you. Where are you going? I want to go with you. And then Jesus always is honest. He rebukes Peter. I'm sure he does it probably fairly kindly. Notice verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus says of all, Notice the irony in that statement. Will you lay down your life for me? I'm about to lay down my life for you. Peter has it all backwards. You're gonna lay down your life for me, Peter. I'm sure Jesus probably hears that in a way they don't they don't get it. Jesus, right now, everything you see now in chapter 13 through chapter 17 is under the shadow of the cross. It's looming big in Jesus' mind. That's why he's troubled. You're gonna die for me, Peter? Actually, he's gonna die for him. The exact opposite is about to happen. Jesus notes the sarcasm. Then he says, you're going to die for me? Truly, truly, I say to you. Whenever he says truly, truly, he's saying, here's something that's absolutely certain. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Now, In in Roman time, you had several watches. The first watch, second watch, (laughs) third watch, fourth watch. The first watch, which went from 12 to 3.30 a.m., what the Romans called the rooster watch or the cock watch—that's when the roosters crow. During that time, that's when—I guess—I don't know anything about roosters, but that's what they called that—the the rooster watch. They it down in Mexico. Yeah. They it yeah. In Maui. Yeah, I heard they that. Knew. I heard that story. He said, "Before the first watch of the night, before three a.m., you're going to deny me three times." Now, how do you think Peter heard that? He just said, Lord, I love you. Lord, I want to go with you. Lord, I would die with you. Peter, you're going, to, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me, even know me. That would hit him like a ton of bricks, wouldn't it? Now, they know this is the Lord. He's never wrong. They know that. I mean, Peter does argue with them. But they know he's, this is the Lord. Peter, I'm sorry, he looked right in his eyes. You're going to deny me three times before 3 a.m. That had to hurt. That had to hurt. This would disturb and concern all of them. Imagine, remember, Peter's the big mouth. Peter's the leader. Peter's probably the oldest, and they're probably thinking. Nathaniel's thinking. Whoa, if Peter's going to deny him, how am I going to do? Him? If Peter's going to collapse, if Peter's going to betray him, what about me? You imagine this? This had this disturbed the whole room. Peter's going to deny him. Peter just said, "I'll die for you." Peter's protesting emphatically. And he means it. They know it. Peter's probably red in the face, Lord, I'll die for you. Take me with you. He just told them, no, Peter, you're going to deny me. Three times. Once would be bad enough. Remember, it's a Jesus who said earlier, he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. That's a serious thing. I'm sure they're very upset over this. The whole room's now like silence. In fact, Peter doesn't speak again until they're in the garden. These next four chapters, five chapters, we don't hear Peter speak again. This is kind of subdued. He's probably in a corner brooding over this. Sad. Very, very sad. This must have hit him like a ton of bricks. Note again that Jesus is in full control. He knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He even even pushed Judas out to do it quicker. He knows exactly what Peter's going to do. Remember, we'll see this when we get there. Peter... As the, as the cock starts crowing, it says, Peter looked at Jesus. Their eyes locked. Jesus has already been up all night, beaten, spit upon, slapped. And they look at each other, and Peter's heart just breaks. This is something sad. Very sad stuff here. Christ knows full well what's coming. Peter, you're going to die for me? You're going to deny me. They all are. They're all going to run away. In fact, you will say that to them. You're all going to leave me tonight. You're all going to desert me. When Jesus went through the worst times of his human life, he was all alone, Not a friend anywhere nearby. Nothing, Surrounded by enemies. As Psalm 22 says, wild bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. Not a friend in sight. That's coming. In fact, Jesus is so in charge of all of this, he already made provisions for Peter. Remember, it's on your sheet. He already prepared for Peter's denial. Luke, Luke 22. In Luke 22, he adds this when he tells Peter, you're going to deny me. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Before this even happened, Jesus was praying for Peter. He knew, being God the Son, Satan as a bullseye on Peter. Probably because Peter's proud of himself. Peter's arguing with his Lord. Peter's kind of self-centered and self-righteous. Peter doesn't understand himself. Satan has, I'll get that, Satan has demanded. Demanded of who? God. God. I demand you give him to me. Just like Satan did in Job chapters 1 and 2, remember? Job only serves you because you're good to him. I demand you take away your hand and watch what I do to him. I'll turn him away from you. Satan's doing that here. He went to the Lord and said, I demand you give me Satan, you give me Peter. He's proud, he's arrogant, he's self-centered, he's mine. He's the man, another phrase, he's the to sift you like wheat. You know how wheat is sifted? They gather the grain into a barn. and they stomp on it so the heads come off. Then they get these long wooden forks and just throw it up in the air. It's called winnowing. And the grain, because it's heavier, falls down and the chaff blows away. Satan is basically saying, I want to take him apart. I'm going to show you what he's really made of. I'm going to sift him down to the bone. So Peter has high hopes. Peter has high views of himself. He's going to build his church on me. I'm going to be, in fact, it, it's possible because Jesus said, you're going to deny me, Maybe the reason why Peter pulled that sword. I'll show you who's going to deny him kind of thing. Don't know for sure. But because Jesus said, you're going to deny me, maybe Peter wanted to show, oh yeah, I'm, I'm royal. And he pulled a sword and did something stupid. But notice here, our Lord, knowing this, That Satan said, He's mine, I want him, give him to me. His pride and his arrogance and his self centeredness means he belongs to me, give him to me. But notice what Jesus says, But I prayed for you. Remember many years ago, Carla said to me something, I never forgot. She said, The difference between Judas and Peter is this they both betrayed him, but Jesus prayed for Peter. He didn't pray for Judas. Judas was a son of perdition, he wasn't elect. Peter was. And because Jesus prayed for Peter. He said, I've prayed for you. That's intercession. We read about the Lord, uh, 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 Jesus at the Lord's right hand in heaven. That's what intercession looks like. He knows full well what you're about to face. And he, he goes to the Father and says, Oh, Father, keep him. Protect him. Take care of him. Jesus loves Peter. He knows Satan could easily take him apart. He's proud. He's kind of stupid. He's kind of brash. He thinks too much highly of himself. But Jesus said, No, I prayed for you. You're going to make it, Peter. And notice what he says here when you you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Or as he says in chapter 22, feed my sheep. When you've turned again. Feed my sheep. Yep, when you come back. In other words, Judas never came back. Judas went out and hanged himself and dropped straight into hell. Peter denied the Lord, went out and wept himself. I'm sure he was weeping horribly what he did. He, He figures it's over. But Christ restored him because he prayed for him. That's part of what it means to be eternally secure. God keeping you. Even when you do terrible, horrible, awful things, which all of us do, I prayed for you that you do not fall. You will come back. In fact, right after this, right after Jesus says, I prayed for you, that's when Peter bragged and Luke, I'm ready to go to prison and death for you. He's not getting it. He's denying it. He's, he's bravado. And Lord, no, 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 I'm going to fight for you. I'm get, again, when we, get to, when we get to the story of Peter, we're going to look at this question in more detail. But think for a minute. We know what ends up, he, Peter ends up denying the Lord. Face to face. How might this have ended differently? If, if, When Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. If he'd have dropped to his knees in tears says, said, no, Lord, no, help me, Lord. Please, don't help me, Lord. How might this have been different? Instead of Peter arguing with him, oh, no, Lord, no, 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 not me. Even even if the rest of these losers do, I'm never going to deny you. Peter humbled himself. Oh, Lord, please, don't let me do this. Lord, please, help me. We don't know. How might it have been different? Instead, he argued and bragged and fell. Some verses, this is is a big principle in Scripture, a big principle in Scripture. You ever heard from Proverbs, how pride goes before a fall? Man, we notice by experience, don't we? Pride's the worst thing about us. First Corinthians ten twelve, Paul says. Therefore, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We're so good at this. I don't need to pray about this. I don't need to seek the Lord. I don't. I can do this. I'm. I'm got it. And boy, you're gonna. How many times we regret that kind of thing? To, to admit, I'm not all that strong. I'm not all that great. Lord, I need you every hour. I need thee, all oh, I need thee. Humble yourself. Lord, help me. Lord, be with me. You ought to start your day by saying, Lord, today, guard my hearts, my thoughts. Holy Spirit, run my life today. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith. Isn't it interesting today that all the, the evil Rebelliousness in the world is based around pride. Pride. The whole gay movement. Be proud. Pride, 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 pride day, pride month, pride this, pride that. Pride's not a virtue. Pride's a death sentence. Be proud of yourself. Celebrate yourself. Exalt yourself. Have a high self-esteem. Be proud of yourself. That's a death sentence. The Bible says don't don't think more highly than you ought to think because you're not all that great. You're not all that nothing. Without the Lord, we're nothing. Without the Lord, the best I could possibly do is wind up in hell. And no better. Sad thing. The Bible warns about pride. God resists the proud. Gives grace to the humble. It says twice. Think of it. Because when you're proud, God says, get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. But when you're humble, when you bow your head and your heart, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. Because that now you're being honest. And now God's getting the honor he deserves. None of us has anything to be proud of. As I said, now, up until chapter 18 in the garden, Peter doesn't say another word here. I think he kind of crawled off into a corner. and Kind of brooding, I guess. But then, read on. You should take chapter 14, the number 14, and cross it right out. This is, remember, the chapter divisions in your Bible were not inspired. There were two guys who did this fact. One of them did it while he was riding on a horse. Pastor Fred, said, like, I think at that time the horse must have skipped. This doesn't belong here. Ch- chapter 13 should go right into chapter 14. If you divide it there, you're coming, you're dividing right in the middle of this whole thing. Having just told Peter, you're going to deny me. Now, all, there's like this. I'm sure when he said that, this, this, the room dropped about 10 degrees. Everybody's like, oh no. Oh no, he's leaving us. We can't go. Peter's going to deny him. What's going on here? As we saw, they're they're scared. They're troubled. They're frightened. They're hurt. And so Jesus says this in that context Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is part of that. This is not a new thought. This is the context of where they are. Do not let your heart be troubled. That's an imperative. He sees that. You can see it on their faces. They're troubled. They're upset. They're worried. Their hearts are breaking. He's he's leaving us, and we can't go with him, and we're going to deny him. What does this mean? I'm sure that this is really the direction pulled off one of their feet. And Jesus says, listen, stop being troubled. Stop it. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now note here. In chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, remember when the Greeks came to him and he starts talking about his death, the seed falling into the ground, producing much fruit? Then right after that he says, and now my soul is troubled. Same word as 14.1. He said here back in chapter 13, Jesus became troubled. Same word. Jesus is troubled. But he says, don't you be troubled. Stop being troubled. When we suffer, we have him with us. God will never (laughs) forsake us. Because he forsook his son. That's the point of what we're just talking here. Jesus says to them, Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm troubled. So you don't have to be. See what's happening here? As he will explain later in these next couple chapters, and as they'll see, Jesus was troubled so that they need not be. As we say here, It is well with our soul because it wasn't well with his. He's saying, don't be troubled. I'm going to do something. Now, they don't fully get this yet. What he's going to explain here, but he says, listen, stop being troubled. Stop being upset. I'm about to do something that's going to give you great reason to not be troubled. Don't be troubled. Because of his troubles, we should be encouraged. Because of his sufferings, I don't have to. Because he died, I don't have to die under God's wrath. But you know He's saying, here? I'm troubled, so you don't have to be. Jesus is troubled. He's not a hypocrite here. Well, I'm troubled, but you shouldn't be. Jesus had reason to be troubled. Good reason to be troubled. But don't you be troubled. Because I'm about to do something that's going to take away, that's going to give you good reason to not be troubled. Neat thing. It's a command. Stop being troubled. That sounds easy to say. One of the commentators said in in psychological counseling that's a terrible thing to do. Someone comes in all worried and you say, well stop worrying. They say they don't do that in counseling. Jesus did it. You ever see that Bob Newhart thing where the lady comes in all worked up and she can't sleep, whatever it is. She's having all these bad dreams. I'm so stressed. I remember he says, stop it. Jesus says here, stop it. He looks at his 11. They're, They're distressed. They're upset. Stop it. Stop being troubled, and here's why. He gets a second command. Notice it again there in verse one. My version says, "Do do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me." The tense is there should so probably read better like, "You believe in God, and or you already believe in God. Believe in me, too." They knew what it was to believe in God. These were Jews. They were raised to. They were raised from little boys on up that God was their was their strength, their tower, their help. I, I, I got answer the verse there in your sheet somewhere. Yeah, they were Proverbs eighteen ten. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is saved. You know, you do know the truth of that. That's a, when you're in trouble. When you're in pain. When you're suffering. When there's Run to the Lord. He's like a strong tower, like a big stone castle. You can run inside and be safe from the enemy. Next verse. Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. These Jews were taught from the time of being little boys, verses like this. There are dozens and dozens of verses like this in the Old Testament. God is our strength. God is our hope. God is our rock. God is our shelter. God hiding under the everlasting wings. They were taught to trust God. When they got in trouble out out on the ocean when they were fishing on the sea, they would cry out to God, help us, Lord. They instinctively knew to do that. They were Jews. Jesus said, you already believe in God. Believe in me too. The same way you trust him. The same way you rely on him. The same way you believe in him. Believe in me too. Just as they should know instinctively to run to God in times of trouble. Jesus said, you should trust me like that and for the same reasons. Picture this. Remember back in uh, Mark 4? They're, they're crossing the sea. Jesus is in the boat sleeping and they're, they're all in the boat. Remember this terrible storm blows up and they're about to be shipwrecked. Now, these, these are seasoned fishermen. They know what a life-threatening storm looks like and they're panicked. They're scared to death. We're going to die. They go wake up Jesus. Remember, he calms the storm. He just he, literally in the, in the Greek he says, stop it or shut up, and the storm ends. Remember what Jesus said? It's on your sheet. Why are you so afraid? And that sounds almost stupid, doesn't it? And I say that with reverence, of course. They're just about to die. These, these, these fishermen know the sea. They know their limits. They know this boat's about to come apart or capsize, and we're all going to drown. Why are you so afraid? Does that sound stupid? <laughs> From a human point of view, they had every reason to be afraid, didn't they? But Jesus says they didn't. See what's happening here? Often, the truth of God goes far above what, what normal human thinking is. According to normal human logic, they had every reason to panic. Jesus said, what were you panicked about? Did he? They didn't realize who was saying that to them. Yeah. What's, what's Jesus saying? I'm in this boat. Do you really think you're in danger here? Do you really think this boat's going to go down with me in it? They panicked. And logically, we'd say, oh, sure, they should have panicked. Jesus said, no, you shouldn't. What should they have done? Jesus is here. Let's wake him up. We shouldn't have panicked. It almost sounds illogical to us. How would you not be scared out of your mind? Jesus says, you shouldn't have been scared out of your mind. Why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Boy, that's our big problem, isn't it? If we just had more faith, if I just believed more, I often pray that you should too. Lord, increase my faith. Like, give me more faith, Lord. That's what He's doing here in John 14. Do not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in Me. You should not be troubled. He's going to, here He's going to tell them why. They need to retrain their thinking. <clears throat> He's going to tell them something now that they don't know yet. Amazingly, an amazing truth that you and I know so well we ignore it. An amazing truth that Jesus is going to say, if you really understand this, you have no reason to be afraid. Look at what he says. Verse 1 again. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And here's why. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to repair a place for you, and if I go to repair a place for you, I will come again and receive it to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's why you shouldn't be troubled. Now, we're going to talk about something every one of you knows so well we ignore it. I'm guilty. Every Christian goes to heaven, right? Yeah, so what? We know that, right? You know that. Big deal. Let's talk about eschatology. Jesus just said here to these men who are very troubled and again from a human point of view if they knew what we know they have a reason to be troubled they're going to go through terrible times the next couple of days but Jesus says don't be troubled here's why I'm going in my, in, where, my, where God the Father is there's room for all of you and I'm going this very night to prepare a place for you there and I'm going to come get you and take you there in other words, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to be where I am. In heaven. In my Father's house. Now remember, God does not dwell in a house. God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have hands. God doesn't even have a size. God is, 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 is spirit. There's no dimensions to God. This is a metaphor. We see this all through the scripture. Heaven's described as uh, Hebrews he he was, as a heavenly country, as a heavenly city, as the, the kingdom of heaven. As the, Jesus called it paradise. It's called that, that place of rest. There's many metaphors for heaven. God doesn't live in a house. But God is in heaven. And Jesus says, where my Father is in heaven, there's room for you. There's many rooms. Again, I, I, we're all used to the King James. I love the King James King James translates that word mansions. That's wrong. The word is simply rooms. I think what the King James translators were doing, rooms just sounds too mundane. We're talking heaven for crying out loud. It's a mansion. That's why they did that. I mean, I would think even even a broom closet in heaven would be like a mansion to us, right? In in heaven, he says, there's many rooms. We're not all going to get a mansion. We're not all going to get a house. In the house where God lives... There is so much room for you. Plenty of room, what he's saying. There's plenty of room in heaven for all of God's elect. If I look at chapter 14, verse 23 of John. 14, 23. 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's the same word. We're going to move in with him. We're going to be neighbors. Roommates. That's the word. Same exact word in preach. In heaven, where the Father is, there are many rooms. And it's enormous there's room for all of you. Remember Revelation 7 9 says John saw a vast multitude that no man could count. There's so many he saw around that throne. There's not there is not a number big enough to describe how many of them there were. It's huge. There's no crowding. There's no sharing seats. No sharing beds. Of course, I'm talking stupid. There's plenty of room for everybody in heaven. I think what he just said there. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm going right now, tonight, remember he said immediately, now, to prepare a room for you. What's he talking about? Cross. The only way anyone's ever going to heaven is through the death of Christ on that cross. I'm going right now to unlock the door for you. To make a bed for you in heaven. To make room for you in heaven. By going to the cross. We're going to talk about more of that next week, Lord willing. And notice he says here, If it were not so, I would have told you. There's the big question. Everybody, everybody on planet Earth at some time in their point in their life wonders, is there life after death? What happens when you die? Everybody at some point in their life wonders that. That's the big question, isn't it? Science can't answer it. Philosophy can't answer it. Is there life after death? I, I think I told you this story when Dave Emery's brother died. Some of you know him. He was a lost man. I was asked to do his funeral. At the funeral, I said, every one of you knows there's a heaven, and every one of you knows there's a hell. I said, you know that. And I said, you know this, don't you? And they're all like nodding their heads. You know this. At the reception in this guy's garage, his girlfriend, who was half drunk, they told me later she was a witch, I don't know if that's true or not, got right in my face. I mean, she walked right up to me like this. You said, there's no doubt there's a heaven. How can you know that? I said, because Jesus said so. Jesus said it. She goes, oh. I said, if Jesus said it, it's true, right? She goes, yeah, I guess so. And she walked away. (laughs) But that's the answer. Jesus here forever settled that question, didn't he? In fact, he says, if it were not so, my dad used to always say, when you die, you're dead, you know nothing, that's the end of you. If If that's how it was, Jesus, I would have told you. If there was no afterlife, if there was no heaven, Jesus said, I would have told you that. Because he's here to tell the truth, to speak for God. If there was no afterlife, if, if, if God's people don't go to heaven, I would have told you that. But I'm telling you, in my Father's house, there's all this room for you. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And again, We're, we're, we're going to come back to more of this next week, but all I'm trying to tell you is you know that. I haven't told you anything you and I don't know. But Jesus here expects us to take that thought and calm ourselves down. The blessed, overarching Christian truth that should, that should affect every situation we face, whether it's sickness, financial problems, hardship, persecution, whatever it is, fill in the blanks. Jesus himself has told us, calm yourself down. Why? Because I'm taking you to heaven with me. That's the overarching. That should, that should, that should color everything we do. He personally said, where I am, there you will be. We'll to that more next week. The ultimate reason why these men in this room should stop being troubled, and the ultimate reason why every Christian, if he's thinking biblically, should not give in to worry, or stress, or fear, or, or the word here, troubled, worked up, distressed, disturbed, not happy, I'm, oh, what, oh, what if this, oh, what if that, oh, what if, is because... If you're in Christ, there's no doubt whatsoever, you're going to end up in heaven. Now, not today, maybe, but that's exactly where you're going, to heaven. Jesus fully expects here that this truth is enough to calm our fears. I get it. This is one of those mundane Christian truths. Yeah, Christians go to heaven. I know that. That's supposed to be hanging over my head every place I go, but I'm going to heaven. I don't feel good today, but I'm going to heaven. I'm in prison for my faith, but I'm going to heaven. I can't pay my bills or whatever, fill in the blank. But Jesus has prepared a place for me in heaven, and I'm going to get there soon, eventually. It's going to happen. Think this through. Thanks to Rick Paquette, I love this phrase, in 1 Peter 1.13, he called it a commanded obsession. Jesus here is commanding us again to think biblically and here to think eschatologically first peter 1 13 he says this therefore with your minds ready for action be serious and set your hope completely that's one greek word that basically means obsess you set your hope absolutely you fixate on this on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of jesus god peter's telling these people and they're, they're undergoing persecution you fixate. You fix your mind on the fact that you're going to be in glory with Jesus Christ that's coming. Helmet of salvation. Good point. In the armor, have it around your head. I am going to heaven. Now let's just stick with that means quickly before we get too far out of time here. You ever, ever hear the phrase "He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good"? That's nonsense. For the Christian, you're no good at all if you're not heavenly minded. Fix your hope. Fix your heart. Fix your destiny. I'm going to heaven. Therefore, if I'm having trouble today or we're all aching today from working yesterday, we're getting old, you could, you could have a long list of troubles and problems in your life, them very serious. But over all of that should be this umbrella, yeah, but I'm going to heaven. Jesus is going to take me to be with him in heaven. Now think about it. He prepared a place for you. Every sickness you now suffer, you're going to be cured of. You know that? Every disease, every sickness, every weakness, every trouble, every problem you face, cancer, death, whatever, whatever you're facing, you will be cured of eventually, completely. Because the Christian goes to heaven. Think about that. This is going to end. Every problem. And we all face problems. We all face troubles. And, all, and some are, are, are not trying to minimize how, how, how serious they are. Every one of them is going to end. Why? Because you're going to heaven every struggle your life is a struggle isn't it just living in this world is a struggle it's hard and it gets weary and it gets tired and you get tired of this it's just more struggle and more struggle that's going to end why because jesus said i've made a place for you in heaven i'm coming for you it's going to end every need every lack every, everything we that this world throws us this world will kick you in the teeth over and over and over again that's hard but over overall, that should be this umbrella, yes, but Jesus has prepared a place for me in heaven. I can wait. I'll get there. It's coming. A power phase of what Jesus said here. This news I've given you guys is disturbing. You will face terrible times, but stop being troubled. Why? Because I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you in heaven, and I personally will come take you to be where I am. This, the big issue has already been settled. This all goes away. All of it goes away. All of it. The best thing that could possibly happen to you if you're in Christ has already happened. you realize that? Christ has already secured for the Christian a place in heaven. That's secured. You you can't lose that. Closing verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Paul spoke of this, the Apostle Paul. Therefore, we do not give up. Paul knew what trouble was. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, all around Paul he was facing hardships, troubles, trials. He had a hard life. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. Why? How is that happening? What Dean Cook just said, chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. I see all these troubles around me, and the troubles I'm in, and the sickness, and the tiredness, and the weakness, and the drudgery of life. I see it. But by faith I know for a fact Christ has prepared a home for me in heaven. And that's more than enough, Jesus says, to get us through. As Tom said, That's the helmet of salvation. Wrap that around your head and never let it go. There's a home for me in heaven because of Christ's death on the cross. So all Jesus basically saying here is, is do the math. You have troubles, you have problems, and they're real. But add to that the fact that the Lord has prepared for you a place in heaven. This is all going to end in a glorious way. But that the true Christian can say, even though I'm in the middle of this, I'm going to heaven. That should bring great comfort right now. You should be so heavenly minded, it affects the way you live on earth. Let's close in prayer. More next time. Oh, Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for recording this in your word, Lord. If we didn't know this, if, if all we had was this life and this earth, how miserable would we be? But Lord, in, in, all, in spite of all our troubles and our trials and our pains and our sicknesses, the burdens we have to bear, Lord, and they are real. You have promised us that through faith in Christ, by the glory of the cross, we are promised and kept and reserved a place in heaven. Lord, this is all going to end. Our sickness goes away. Our pain goes away. Our struggles go away. Our, our struggles with sin will end. Oh, Lord, help us to believe this. Lord, we, we know this. We say this. We take it for granted. But, Lord, Jesus expected this truth to, to color our lives. That we're, we're, He expects us to draw great comfort from this. Lord, help us to do so. Help us to obey Him, to believe Him, and to think often about what He's done for us and what's coming, Lord, just a little while longer, and all of this is going to go away. Lord, help us to believe that and to rejoice in that. It takes strength from that, to show a dying, twisted, hopeless world that we truly have hope, and we truly have a reason for joy, and we have a reason to be strong, and a reason to be comforted at peace that passes understanding. Lord, make make us like that. Teach us to believe and, and, and obey and have faith. Faith in our Savior who promised this to us. We ask it all in his name. Amen.